Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. It's just extremely demoralizing for children on both sides, right? Because the children who are being told that they're oppressors, regardless of what they do, regardless of their personal actions and beliefs, all of a sudden have this moral guilt imputed to them through no fault of their own. And the children who are being told that they're ipso facto oppressed, well, it's just extremely demoralizing. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. I'm Dr. Mariana Orlandi, host of the show, and if this is your first time, I hope you will enjoy it. If you do, I encourage you to like it, to share it, and to check out our website and programs. Also, the people that work on the IT here, our Nick, told me you should subscribe to our podcast because subscriptions somehow help us stay alive as of course do your donations, small and large. And in fact, before I start, I actually want to thank all the generous donors that are now listening and even the ones that are not listening, even though they should. For many years, our donors have made the work of the Austin Institute possible, supporting our fellows' research, our programs for students, and our community outreach. So please don't stop now. We have too many great programs too many good ideas, and maybe you could double this year's gift. And I promise that we would at least double the results. But now, okay, enough with promotion. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming again on our show, Professor Melissa Moscala, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the Catholic University of America, McDonald Distinguished Fellow in the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University School of Law, and Fellow of our very own Austin Institute. Good morning, Melissa. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing fine. How about you? I'm doing well. And as I said, you know, people cannot see because we're only audio, but you look very nice. So I'm something like, is it the semester that is over and no more classes and some rest? Yeah, it's, it's nice to have the semester done, though. I enjoy the teaching a little bit of uh, more flexibility and time to work on other research and projects. It's always great. Yeah, for us at the Austin Institute, it's, it's good to know that our fellows have some time off in the summer so that they can write and publish. And so we have more research to support and to talk about on our show. And yeah, it's, it's an important time. I mean, it's a rest time, but it's an important time this summer. Anyway, today, Melissa, you agreed to discuss a topic that remains at the center of the public debate, which is school choice. And I think this is also a perfect topic for you being the author of To Whom Do Children Belong. And it seems that today they belong to the school, or better phrased, it is the school that decides what they should and what they should not be taught. Is that right? Well, that's what some people think, including a lot of uh, very prominent legal and political theorists. But it's not what the, at least the dominant understanding of the legal tradition states. There's a very strong tradition constitutionally of recognizing that parents are the primary educators of their children. And so the, the view that, you know, the school ultimately gets to decide is in tension with that tradition. But, you know, there are debates about how far parental rights extend. And some courts have said that they don't really extend beyond the, the schoolhouse door. But I think that's a flawed interpretation. And we're going to talk about parental rights, in particular, you know, the American view of that. But what do you think is the origin of the belief, of contemporary belief, that it is up to the state to decide what children should be taught or not? I think there are a couple of things. I think one is the idea that the 
authority that parents have to make decisions on behalf of their children, including decisions about education, medical decisions, all sorts of things. A lot of people seem to think that that authority basically is derived from the state. So that the state really is the one in charge of children and the state just as a matter of pragmatism effectively decides to delegate that authority to parents as long as the parents behave appropriately according to the the state's standards. But then when the state disagrees, uh, then they can step in, right? Or they can set guidelines for how children should be educated, even if those are against the parents' wishes. So that's one idea that the idea that The authority of parents is derivative of the state rather than natural and pre-political. Yeah, and I know, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with, I was reminded by another fellow of the Austin Institute, Professor Pakaluk, about an encyclical that Pius XI wrote in 1929, if I'm not wrong, the Venus Ilius Magistri, that Mm -hmm. was about the role of schools. And it was very clear, right, that the school is a subsidiary of you know, the family should teach what the family can teach, the church will teach. If the, neither of the two can do the work, then comes the school. But it wasn't only the Pope. I mean, if we read Chesterton, we know that that's, I mean, it was obvious to him that, you know, you should never trust the state more than you trust your mom. And <laughs> as you mentioned in, in the recent article you wrote that we're going to talk about, even someone like John Stuart Mill understood that that was different. So what is it exactly? I don't know if I'm, well, what is it that Mill said and thought? And how do you think the switch happened? Right. So Mill, John Stuart Mill, is extremely influential 19th century English philosopher. And he was somebody who was very much a strong advocate for free speech. He was also somebody who, you know, in his day would be considered very much you know, on the left of the political spectrum insofar as he was challenging a lot of conventional social norms and, and moral norms particularly related to uh, sexuality and, and marriage and things like that. And he wanted society to basically leave people free to lead their lives as they wanted to. He didn't want governments getting involved in imposing any particular belief system on the people, right? And so Mill is very often seen as a, a thinker that people on the left, quote unquote, would have affinity to or affinity for. But it actually turns out that on the school choice issue, Mill was very clear that, and this is a quote from his famous book on liberty, a a general state education is a mere contrivance for molding people to be exactly like one another. In other words, he saw forced public education, forced education by government-run schools to be a real danger to freedom and really a way for the state to impose its favorite ideology on the entire population. And, you know, if you look at totalitarian regimes of the past century, I mean, one thing that they have in common, one of the first things that a totalitarian regime does is try to divide children from their parents in part by imposing mandatory government-run schooling that parents have no alternative to, right? Because that's how the state then indoctrinates the children and often sows in the children's minds a mistrust of their parents. So that's always been a tool of totalitarian regimes. And I think Mill understood that very well. Yeah, Mill understood that. Chesterton understood that. And I would recommend to anyone who hasn't read it a a short essay that was titled was uh, Turning Inside Out and where he talks about the role of education and how it's ridiculous that if we think that education is the most important thing, it's the one that we outsource the most 
thinking that mm-hmm. it's not good enough for a woman to be the teacher, a teacher for her own children. That's it's a it's not a great job. And it's that, you know, if we think that education is should be exalted, then we should exalt the role of parents. And I mentioned how Pius eleven at that encyclical where he actually said exactly what you were saying about totalitarianism, because he was using, you know, the example it was speaking of Russia and right. talking about how they, they were taking children in their most tender years to educate them to socialism. But so the question would be, you know, I know that the United States instead has a different history. And I, you know, the, rec- the, the famous cases on parental rights in school are Meyer versus Nebraska, and then the Pierce of Society of Sisters. On the religious front, there was the Wisconsin versus Yoder. So I don't know if you want to talk, say a little bit of what the constitutional framework of parental rights in school has always been in the United States. Sure. I mean, I think, I mean, just a little bit of, of background, I think it's worth noting that even in our own country, the, the progressive movements push for compulsory public education, which was, you know, a novelty of the late 19th and early 20th century. It was also very much tied up with an ideology of wanting to uh, indoctrinate children in the dominant viewpoints of the elites in society at that time. So it was very much tied up with movements that were anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant, and wanting to impose a kind of uniform white Anglo-Saxon Protestant ideology on children. And that's why, so the the Meyer v. Nebraska case, for instance, was about a law uh, forbidding parents from sending their children to a school that would teach them German. And that was clearly anti-immigrant sentiment. Pierce case was forbidding parents from sending their children to a Catholic school rather than to a public school. And it was also clearly anti-Catholic sentiment, anti-immigrant sentiment that was part of those laws, right? And, And if you read through the laws and the the rationale for those laws, I mean, they sound uh, quite totalitarian, in fact, and, and very much something that is, you know, not not a, a great page, right, in the history of our of our nation. And the Supreme Court in both of those cases came down very strongly, saying uh, in Pierce, for instance, that the, the child is not the mere creature of the state, but instead that the, the parents of the child have the, the great obligation to educate that child, coupled with the right to do so in the manner that they see best. And the same thing in, in Meyer versus Nebraska. They actually compared the, the laws at issue in that case to the regime of ancient Sparta, where children were effectively raised in common by the state and parents really had no rights over their education and, and upbringing. And the court recognized that, of course, neither of these laws was as extreme as the situation in, in Sparta. The principal issue was the same. In other words, is the state the primary educator of children or are the parents the primary educators of children? And the, the court affirmed uh, on the basis of a very long line of common law doctrine, recognizing the natural duties and rights of parents uh, to direct the education and upbringing of their children. They, they affirmed that as a fundamental constitutional right. But this is not what the Supreme Court has said in most recent judgments, correct? Well, the court has not directly taken up this issue in quite a long time. So the the most recent case that made it to the Supreme Court was a case called Troxel v. Granville. And that was a case about visitation rights. So in that case, you had grandparents 
who wanted to be able to see their grandchildren more often than the parents wanted. And so the grandparents sued for uh, greater visitation rights, saying that it was in the best interests of the child that they'd be able to, to see their grandchild more often and that the, that the parents were not acting in the child's best interest by, you know, preventing them from having greater visitation with the children. And the court ended up siding with the parents and saying, you know, it's not for us to decide whether or not these children should spend more time with their grandparents. It, it may be true, it may not be true, but it is the parents who have the authority to decide what's in the best interests of the child. And that includes deciding which other adults that child ought to spend time with. So maybe the parents were right, maybe they were wrong, but it was clearly within their authority to make that decision. And it wasn't within the court's authority to second guess that. Because, you know, whatever you might think of the parent's decision, it doesn't amount to abuse or neglect or anything that would indicate that these are not fit parents able to make the judgment. So the court, I think, the only problem with the Troxel ruling is not its conclusion, which I think was sound. But unfortunately, that Troxel failed to clearly reaffirm the Meyer-Pierce doctrine that parental rights are fundamental and therefore deserve what's called strict scrutiny, meaning that they're held to the kind of highest legal test. So the state has to show that there is a compelling interest and that these are the least restrictive means to achieve that that interest. So if parental rights are fundamental rights, then anything that burdens parental rights would have to meet the strict scrutiny standard. And that's what the court was not clear about in Troxel, right? So that's yeah. uh, something that hopefully future cases will improve and, and get the court to clarify. Yeah. In the meantime, as you write, the Ninth Circuit didn't decide in a way that is very much consistent with the Supreme Court precedent. In the case that you quote, it is Fields v. Palmdale School District. 2005. Right. So that was a case where elementary school children were given a questionnaire that included some very sensitive sexual topics. And parents were not informed of this, uh, nor were they asked to give consent for their children to take this questionnaire. And so when the parents found out about it, they were quite angry and found that it had been disturbing to their children to be you know, exposed to these questions. And so they sued the school. and. The Ninth Circuit ruled against them, basically saying that uh, parents' right to control their children's education effectively doesn't extend beyond the threshold of the schoolhouse door. So parents can teach kids whatever they want at home, but once the kids enter the school, parents have no right to influence or have a say in what children are taught inside the school. Which I think we would all agree with if the topics were English literature, physics, and I don't know. Greek history. But as we know, the topics are getting sensitive and controversial, which is the reason why parents are, as you mentioned, the questioner about the sensitive sexual topics. And there isn't then another topic more recently, which is the one you recently discussed in your public discourse article, which is critical race theory. Right. Now, you argue for school choice in an article that is analyzing also critical race theory. So, because as I understand, there are different options, right? What one could be against the teaching in public school of, of critical race theory and banning it as some legislatures have done. Or as you say, we can go follow the route of school choice. But before we get to deciding the prudential part, maybe, you know, since you, you are an expert in these things, 
for those of us who have heard of critical race theory, but don't really know what that is, how about you as a professor who is well-trained and teaching people theories, professor of philosophy, why don't you tell us in a nutshell what critical race theory is? Sure. So briefly, all right, uh, critical race theory is a view that kind of grows out of a neo-Marxist school of thought that's called critical theory, broadly speaking, and then gets taken up in legal studies movements in a lot of law schools. And uh, the idea, broadly speaking, right, in line with its Marxist origins, the idea of critical theory in general is to think about the goal of theory not as attaining objective truth, because objective truth is viewed with suspicion, but instead the aim of philosophy of theory is to emancipate humanity from repressive ideologies that are embedded in dominant social structures. And so the within the, the legal studies movement, they kind of took up this critical theory idea and applied it to the law, arguing that law is not actually truly impartial, but it is just a kind of power structure by which elites maintain their privilege. And then particular theorists within that movement decided to apply this analysis, thinking about it through the lens of racial privilege. So you have theorists like the late Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, Richard Delgado, who argue that racism in the United States is pervasive, is embedded in social structures, and that values like legal neutrality, objectivity, meritocracy, colorblindness, all of those things are actually a means of perpetuating inherently racist legal, social, and economic systems. So if I may, just to provide a couple of examples, following this train of thought, one could argue, and has been argued from a critical point of view, that, for instance, a crime like stealing is not really a crime because there is something that is objectively wrong about taking someone else's property, but is the product of a culture that gives property a value. But there is no reason why property is a value, and for some culture it might not be a value, so there is no real reason why stealing should be a crime. Right, or that the criminalization of it is a way of perpetuating the, the privilege of the capitalist class. Exactly, yeah. And so on the same than arguing, you know, in terms of race, instead of being something that is a product of the capitalism, you can find something else that is typical of our culture. Let's say I'm thinking of monogamous marriage versus a tribal idea of a marriage or polyamorous that could be seen as a white concept and not something that is good for the woman to know that there is one man that is going to take care of her while she's pregnant and as a child grows. So as you said, this critical theories have a skepticism towards truth and objectivity. And so my question for you is, if all knowledge is subjective, is it possible to have a dialogue? That's a very good question. I mean, of course, regardless of what theories people espouse, they're still people, right? And, and therefore, in fact, capable of rational dialogue and objective knowledge, even if they deny the existence of such things. So I do think that the dialogue is always eventually possible, though it, it's more difficult, I think, when you're dealing with a, a theory that just presumes that if you disagree with the premises of the other side, 
you're if so facto racist, for instance, right? So, um, so that, you know, I think that these kinds of theories play into the uh, very unfortunate tenor of public discourse today, which is, which is not to presume goodwill on, you know, both sides of the argument, but instead to presume that uh, the person who disagrees with you must be bigoted or racist yeah. or prejudiced or have animosity toward, yeah. toward some underprivileged group or class. And that just shuts down dialogue. Yeah, the, uh, the coddling of the American mind in this regard, one of the wrong principles of today dialogue is exactly uh, never giving the other the benefit of the doubt and never saying, right. you know, probably was not offending me. I just misinterpreted what was being said. Right. But okay, so critical race theory assumes that most of the idea, let's say, or many of the ideas of the West are product of this racism that is pervasive and is everywhere and is in the structure of everything. And then, as you mentioned in, in the article you wrote, there is such thing as a passive racism, which is the answer of people who do not believe in this structural racism. Is that, is that correct? Am I understanding it correctly? Right. So, I mean, so basically the idea, uh, and this comes out especially in uh, some of the popularizers of uh, critical race theory, like Robin DiAngelo and Ibram Kendi, the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist. I mean, so the basic idea there is that you're either an anti-racist, which means that you you buy into, you know, this whole theoretical system, and you confess that simply by the fact of your membership in a privileged group, you are therefore part of the problem. So the fact that you're fair-skinned. Right. So okay. it, the mere fact that I'm Caucasian means that I am privileged and an oppressor and that I'm part of an oppressive social structure and that I have to recognize that and confess that and try to work against that by, you know, positively fighting against the systemic racism. And if I fail to do that, then I am complicit, right? And so I'm, I'm passively racist. So, okay, so that would be passive racism. And you start talking about these things precisely because you're dealing with schools. And so the problem of critical race theory is that apparently it's been taught in school. And so what you are trying to discuss is whether this is material that kids should be learning and whether parents should have a say, right? Right. So I think, you know, the concerns that many parents have about this material is not that, say, in a high school class, children are exposed to this theory as one competing theory among many, which then, you know, is open to critique and uh, to the presentation of opposing viewpoints. That's not the issue. I think if that were happening, very few people would have a, a really serious problem with it. The problem is that this is being presented to children, often very young children, beginning in elementary school, and it's being presented to them as truth truth that they must uncritically affirm if they are not to be both labeled as racist and subject to disciplinary measures by the school or perhaps, you know, failing out of a required course for refusing to inherit these beliefs. And many parents, parents of all races, by the way, are very concerned about this because it really, in a way, it's a racist theory because it says, if you're white, you're privileged and you're an oppressor. If you are black, you're oppressed and therefore kind of good because you're a victim and the victim is always good. And if you're whatever, on, on any of the, the kind of underprivileged classes, you know, you are oppressed and a victim and good and, and we need to defer to you and, and the opposite, right? And it's just extremely 
demoralizing for children on both sides, right? Because the children who are being told that they're oppressors, regardless of what they do, regardless of their personal actions and beliefs, all of a sudden have this moral guilt imputed to them through no fault of their own. And the children who are being told that they're ipso facto oppressed, well, it's just extremely demoralizing because, you know, a child could just see that and say, well, okay, well, why bother to improve my lot in life? If I'm just, you know, systemic oppression is what it is. There's nothing I can do about it. There's no way I, you know, I can improve my lot. It, it's really a, a kind of terrible way of just pigeonholing people on, on the basis of their race or, or other characteristics. About them. Yeah, I'm thinking of the psychology that Jordan Peterson helped to popularize and the idea that victimization of oneself is never a good idea. And that is right. also true whenever we have a disease or something bad happens in our life. There's one way that we can be sure we're not going to improve is by looking at ourselves as victim. And that is the first thing. And then the second thing, I know that critical race theory argues that, you know, color blindness is a white concept and is a way of oppression. But you know, we often talk about the premature sexualization of children that should not mm-hmm. ask certain questions about themselves and about others. They should, you know, for until you hit puberty, you should see everyone as basically sexless. And that the problem is when you have questions too early on. And I'm seeing the same thing with the color of skin, because, you know, even with the best intention, I've heard students hearing a professor and noticing, oh, yes, like he is white, right? Like noticing things that, I don't know, maybe, you know, I understand the critical race theory, we should know that's a good thing to notice, but it sounds like that there should be things that if we are really an equal society, we should not be noticing, right? Like, oh, she's very good for being a woman, right? Like gender equality means, right, that you're going to judge me as a professor or as a podcast host, not based on, you know, what. So there is a blindness that is... A, in a sense, equality. And and I'm afraid that teaching critical race theory is actually making us lose that. I mean, it certainly hypersensitizes people to things like race and and then makes it then impossible for people to speak to some of these issues unless they belong to the right category, right? So it's it's a way of immediately kind of delegitimizing the, the viewpoint of a particular person. So if you're not Black, you can't speak about problems of racism because, you know, how dare you, right? If you don't have the lived experience, yeah. speak to this, right? Even, even if you've done an incredible amount of research on it and in fact have a great deal of knowledge about it, right? So it's also, yeah, a way of delegitimizing. Yeah, because I, I do know of Black professors that do not agree with critical race theory, but they are not invited very often to talk about it. So if yes. this thing is taught in school, one option has been from certain legislatures to ban the teaching of critical race theory or to have bills that propose banning critical race theory in school. And instead, you are arguing back to the beginning, right, of in your scholarship and to whom it should have belonged, that school choice is, is a better idea. So how would that work? And why do you think it's a better idea or a feasible alternative? Sure. I mean, so I mean, I don't think that these things are an either or, right? So, I mean, when it comes to public school curricula, it is one of the jobs of the legislature to provide guidelines for the curriculum. So, if you know, if you have something that is being widely taught in schools that many parents in the state think ought not to be taught in the schools, well, they could reasonably have recourse to the legislature to make certain guidelines. So, I don't think there's anything inherently problematic about that. Obviously. There could be free speech concerns or things like that. And so such laws need to be crafted carefully 
to avoid them being effectively kind of gag orders, right, for discussions of race. But n- none of those laws are intended to, to be that. And the ones that I've seen attempt to be carefully crafted to not be a gag order, but but actually in some ways to protect free speech by ensuring, you know, most of the laws, what they outlaw is the requirement that students or teachers affirm these beliefs, right? So in a way, this is a protection of free speech. It's not saying that these ideas can't yeah. be discussed in class. It's just saying that they can't be, that nobody can be required to affirm That they should really be truth. discussed. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Or that they must, you know, be discussed as the truth. But I think that there's also a kind of broader problem that this brings up, namely that uh, while things like critical race theory or, you know, some of the ideologies about sex and gender that are being pushed in the schools, while these are the most obvious things, uh, in general, it's impossible for a school to be value neutral, nor should we even want a school to be value neutral, right? Part of education is, includes education and, and values. So there's, there's no way to avoid it, and it's not even desirable to avoid it. The problem is that if parents are the primary educators, well, they should be the ones who determine the kinds of values that are being taught to their children. And so it's a problem if effectively the only option that parents have for the education of their children is the public school, because that means that the only kinds of values that their children are going to be getting at school are the values that are kind of dominant among political and educational elites. Parents who agree with those values might be quite happy to send their children to those schools. But what about parents who don't agree with those values? They may literally have no other alternative if they don't have the means to send their children to a private school or to homeschool them, which many parents don't have. Yeah, exactly. Those private schools are expensive and homeschooling at least time expensive, you know, and, right. and they require, exactly. I mean, they require a lot of preparation and, you know, and, and they require a lot of preparation. Not, not every parent is up. Yeah. Not so. every parent is, up, you know, it's ready or is willing or is capable. You know, I'm thinking also of usually, you know, public schools, the less privileged is exactly, you know, talking about racism is usually immigrants who work two jobs and definitely do not have the time to, to spend time with their, their children because they don't have pays that would give them the possibility to be at home. And they're also the ones who do not have the time to read at their curriculum that, you know, what their children are actually studying. So what you propose is basically a system of charter school, right? And the idea of Well, I'm not sure. No, so not, I mean, charters would be uh, one thing, but not charters alone. So charters are still government-funded schools, so they have a lot more freedom, uh, yeah. curricular freedom than traditional public schools. But no, what I propose is a, a very a broad uh, school choice system basically a voucher sort of system where parents can receive a certain amount of money per child and they can use that money either to send their child to a public school or a charter school or they can use that money to offset the cost of tuition at a private school or to offset educational expenses for homeschool so that really gives parents full choice and if you think about it right if parents are the primary educators, why would we think that the state should provide the kind of default education for children, right? If parents are primary educators, then public educational funding should be channeled through parental choice, who can then determine what the best environment is for their child, that they might think that that's the public school in some circumstances, but in other circumstances, they might think that a private school, a religious school, uh, or homeschooling, 
might be the best. Parents are the ones in the best position to know that. They're the ones best motivated to want their child to have a good education. And especially for poor parents, this can really be a lifeline to uh, give kids in failing public schools uh, an option for getting a good education. Yeah, I think, I don't know, to your point of like, why shouldn't the parents, you know, take responsibility for their children's education? I think that one of the reasons some, a lot of parents are not on board with the school choice and the voucher idea is because they're actually not really aware of what public education has become. So I'm very happy that we're discussing this critical race theory aspect of it. We we are discussing in another episode, the section gender curriculum in K to 12 schools. But, you know, if parents thought, still think that education can be value-free and that children are more or less are thought certain basic things that they need to know and they would learn everywhere, I think we should all encourage them to actually, you know, look at the assignments, look at the textbooks, look at what is presented as facts, what is presented as bigotry, and how much room there is for conversations. Another striking thing for me is to hear students, you know, saying, that they want to know what the professor wants to hear before answering questions. So mm-hmm. that's that's the level of freedom that you perceive, you know, and how much real really free speech is is valued today in institutions. But there is an argument that, you know, those who oppose the idea of vouchers would say, which would be, you know, that public schools are already in need of money. And do you think it's a is is that a valid argument that you know, the, the voucher system only benefits richer kids and not really the poor ones? Yeah, I mean, the the empirical research does not bear that out for, um, for a couple of reasons. One reason is that introducing a, a broad voucher system actually introduces accountability into the public schools, right? And when schools become accountable to parents, because basically the parents actually have a choice and can send their kids elsewhere. Then they start listening more to what the parents want. They become more responsive to the parents and they tend to provide a higher quality of of education. There's a kind of market incentive for them to improve the quality of the education that they provide to children. And there have been a number of studies in places where there are limited voucher programs or charter schools that compete with the the public schools that add some real competition to the public schools. And some of those studies have found that after a period of time, the educational quality in the public schools also goes up as a result of the competition, right? So introducing that level of accountability and a kind of healthy competition is actually a way uh, to help the public schools to improve. So I think that's that's one thing. But a, a second thing is that, you know, if these vouchers can allow a significant number of students who otherwise would not get a decent education to be able to get one, well, that's a huge gain. So it seems like a, a very cruel kind of answer to say, well, in order to make sure that the public schools don't go under or something like that, we just have to hold a whole bunch of kids hostage and force them to have a terrible education because we need to make sure that the public schools survive and do well. I mean, in the end, if you end up with a situation where through the voucher system, fewer kids end up in public schools and you have a kind of market incentive for more private and charter schools to, to develop that meet the, the demands of parents for alternatives, 
and they do a better job of educating the children and, and are more responsive to what parents want for their children. I don't really see why that's a loss. No, it would be relieving the state from quite a big of, you know, a duty in educating the, the children. I mean, if we can do it with private schools, I mean, we could have the state focusing on other things. So yeah, no, I also don't see as you do. I've tried to read the arguments against school choice and they seem to make very little sense, meaning that they remind me, I don't know if you're following now the Elon Musk and Twitter thing, that it feels like now the monopoly of Twitter is a big problem to say, you know, it's going to be the only owner of information when, and then you, you know, you look around and that's been true in information on, on every other thing that has been a monopoly, right? right? So it just feels like, why does it become a problem if someone decides his own education and it's no more the state? You know, why was that okay when the values are imposed by the state and why is it not okay when it's just families? And then one of the arguments against school choice again was that, you know, it's not supported by grassroots movement, but one of them said it's supported by billionaires, you know, by rich people. And I must confess that most of the students that attend events at the Austin Institute, you know, they've, they've gone to... Uh, charter school or they've been homeschooled and they are in favor of school choice. And I'm not aware of those, you know, many billionaires coming to our (laughs) events. I mean, if there are, I would encourage them to become supporter of our work, but that doesn't sound to be the case. I don't know if that's also your anecdotal knowledge of it, who are the people in favor of school choice. I mean, if you look at the the preferences of parents, I mean, so any state that has estate or, uh, or, or local area uh, that has adopted even very limited voucher sorts of programs, those programs are always immediately oversubscribed. Parents are waiting in line to try to get, you know, the, the DC Opportunity Scholarships or the, the, the various uh, vouchers that are available on, in other places. So that tells me that, and, and, you know, these are billionaires, right? These are the people who can't afford anything except yeah. public schools. These are the the people who are most struggling in our society and who would love to be able to give their kids a better education, but but don't have the means to do it. And they jump at the opportunity when these vouchers are made available. So that tells me that this is a grassroots demand. This is what parents want. And I think especially after the experience of COVID, where, uh, first of all, parents had a window, a literal kind of window on the computer screen into their children's classrooms and got to see what their children were learning or were not learning, that really awakened a lot of parents to the poor quality of the education their children were receiving or the ideological quality of it, and uh, has led to a a huge upsurge in homeschooling and in a desire for alternatives to the public schools. But I think it also showed the value of accountability to parents. So if you looked at, you know, which schools reopened almost you know, immediately or relatively quickly after the very earliest stages of the pandemic. Um, most private schools and religious schools reopened uh, at least by the fall of 2020, whereas a lot of public schools, even into 2021, were not operating in person at all or were not full-time, right? And that's because they were more beholden to the teachers' union than they were to the parents and the good of the children. There is a quote from Chesterton when he's talking about education in that same essay that I was mentioning earlier that says, ultimately, the teacher deals with one particular aspect of a person and for a very limited amount of time. You don't even know if you're going to see the same teacher the next year. A parent instead deals with the entire soul of the person under every aspect and forever. 
So it is not surprising that schools that, you know, take care of all the grades that will be accountable, that you know who is not only the teacher, but the person that founded the school and that is running it, that you feel responsible for the education of that person because there is a closer relationship. And closer relationship is a good thing. It's, you know, it's we're relational human beings. And so right. having people that actually care about the whole person is something that the public school just by definition cannot offer. And that's something that Chesterton saw. I mean, you know, the bigger you go, the more difficult it is to care about the the individual. Right. I mean, and of course, that's not to say that there aren't many dedicated public school teachers that Most care about, are. you know, no, their, their children, right? So we don't want to, you know, give that impression. But the point is that they can't have the level of understanding and knowledge and long-term interest and concern for the child uh, that the parents have. And I think that, they, you know, as a public school teacher, you have a lot less freedom too. So even if you Absolutely. were realizing yeah. that, you know, the kids in my classroom need this now, and, you know, this is time for them to read this rather than that. We need to spend more time on this topic because I've seen some reaction in a public school. That freedom is a lot less. So that's why I'm saying it's a little more difficult. I come from Europe, so I think that public school can be great. They've done a great job there. But it, it was also a different time, maybe, right? So mm -hmm. maybe different times require different responses from, you know, policymakers and laws. Anyway, Melissa, we went... A little longer than we usually do, but this was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful podcast for me. I'm always happy when you have time for us. You're a great scholar. We're very proud that you're one of our fellows. And I hope that this is just one of the many episodes that we record together. Me too. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you very much for listening and we hope you enjoyed our episode of our show, What We Can't Not Talk About. If you did like the episode, remember to share it among your friends. Remember to subscribe. And if you can, please donate to the Austin Institute so that we can continue to do this and we can continue with our programming and we can continue to support the research of our fellows.